Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm a feminist, but I really want to be Billie Eilish on the front of Vogue in underwear, please. And thank you. <laughs> I mean, I don't blame you. She looks absolutely banging, doesn't she? I mean, people were like, well, she's let everyone down because, you know, she used to wear smocks. And I'm like, but she was really young when she started. I completely see. Wasn't she like 15 or something? Yeah, I think she was. She was really young. It would have been very weird if a 15-year-old had come out in... (laughs) But now she's a grown up and she might, she's in a different phase and she's going, oh, I'm exploring this now. And I think that's a one, it's one of the wonderful things about being a pop star. I think going through as a pop star, and she's really more of an independent musician, isn't she, than a pop star. She's, she's, she's yeah. sort of more than a pop star. Sing, as a singer songwriter, I mean, you've got access to the hottest lingerie in the world. If folks offering to put you in it, when you're an old lady, Billie Eilish, you're going to look back on that and go, damn glad I did that shoot. Yeah, absolutely. I thought you were saying as a singer-songwriter because you sort of gestured towards yourself at the time and at the time and I thought, "Oh, I didn't know Deborah Francis White was a singer-songwriter oh, yeah, as well." Big time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a feminist, but I am ashamed to say that I get quite miffed if a man is walking past me on the tube as I'm carrying something heavy up and down the stairs and he doesn't offer to help me. I thought you were going to say and he doesn't wolf whistle. <laughs> At least comment <laughs> At on least how great my legs look carrying this box. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but I just clicked on a link that said Benefer, Ben Affleck and J-Lo are back together. <gasps> That's what, what the link what? said. I don't know if what? it's true. Because you have to true. click about 45 other arrows to get to the point where it, it goes we saw them in a cafe last week I think they might anything. have just met in the street and gone oh yeah. Jenny from the block woo yeah um, hey hey yeah, that how guy are you? from yeah. Goodwill Hunting high five it yeah. could have been that it could have been Shop that it's just but, an awkward ex meet up in a street kind of thing that's been blown out of all proportion it's probably that but I nevertheless clicked on Benefer I am now very <laughs> conscious not to click I won't click on anything with Meghan Markle because I'm like you are keeping that in the news cycle every time you click even if you're clicking to be outraged by what they're saying about her, you're keeping it in the news cycle. They're posting it for clicks. 
They don't know anything more about Meghan Markle or what she said or what's in her children, but they don't know. They don't know. They don't know. They're just making up stuff because yeah. it gets clicks and they want to make a good living. So I never click. I'm a feminist, but I struggle to grow my leg hair for longer than about three days before I feel a bit disgusted with myself. <gasps> disgusted? You should not feel disgusted at your own leg hair. I know. It's you really You need to bad. do a challenge for seven days. Personally, I enjoy a smooth leg. Yeah. To be honest, I had a wax before I had a haircut. Did you? Okay, mm. yeah. I love a smooth leg. I know, it does make <sighs> me feel fantastic. But why should it? It's not how I'm supposed to be. We're not designed this way. And the more we all keep waxing our legs, the more we'll all continue to feel like we're somehow... You're allowed to enjoy a smooth leg, but I don't think you should be disgusted at yourself for not having a smooth leg. I think no, you should go, that's beautiful too. It's just not my preference. Yeah, you're right, you're right. So I'm, I'm going to work on that and I'll get back to you. I think, Susanna, you need to do the seven-day leg challenge because the longer it goes on, the more you're going to start to go, this is normal. This yeah. is just normal. So I will do it with you. Okay, all seven right, Seven-day leg challenge. We'll do an Instagram account. Although we are coming out of lockdown now into summer parties. Let's not. Let's wait till winter. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but I just did question time. Mm. And... I thought Thangham Debonair was going to be my ally. Yeah. So wrong was I that I ended up tweeting her afterwards because this is what happened on Question Time. Oh, God. I was asked what I thought of Keir Starmer, our leader of the opposition, leader of the Labour Party, and I said, look, I want to like Keir. I'm a Labour voter. He's definitely a statesman. He brushes his hair before a speech, which is such a big plus at the moment with the Prime Minister we have. And Fiona Bruce went, well, that's a low bar. And I went, well, here we are at the bottom of the barrel. What do I tell you? (laughs) And, you know, I want Kia to listen to Labour voters. I want him to show more passion. I was really disappointed that his first response to the policing bill, which is, you know, anti-protesting, was to abstain. And Thangham went, no, we, we voted against that. And I went, yeah, but that was his first response was to abstain. And she went, no, it wasn't. Um. And uh, I said, but it's, that's what, I said, you should tell the papers that then, because that's what all the papers brought. She went, oh, like you can believe the pa- what's in the papers. Oh yeah, you can believe what's in the, really sarcastically. And I was like, well, I don't work in the House of Commons. That's all ordinary people have got to go on is what's in the broadsheets. Yeah. And Diane Abbott had tweeted it, had said, I'm really disappointed that Keir Starmer's whipping us to abstain. I hope now after the vigil where there was police violence, I hope that he changes his mind. So that's mm-hmm. all I've got to go on. Keir Starmer's got a Twitter account. He could always have tweeted, reports of my abstention have been greatly exaggerated. He didn't say anything. He just then said, okay, we'll vote against it. She could have said, uh, Keir was reading the bill in full. Then he was listening to the views of the party. He just took his time over it. She could have, but she just acted like I was kind of insane. Yeah, like, or tweeted you like you were stupid, which is never going to go down well, is it? So I tweeted her afterwards when I Mm. got out. I found all Mm. the evidence. And I tweeted her and said, hey, Thangham, you know, kind of great to work with you, but it seems like this was an error and it'd be great before the show goes out if you could just confirm that, you know, I wasn't completely... Because it was like I was ill-informed and I was like... Yeah, no, no, no. And she ignored me and then Twitter (gasps) flipped out and people went, you're gaslighting, Deborah. This is not right. And then she ignored me, continued to ignore me. So I quote tweeted and said, it'd be great to get a response to this. I was very nice. I was very polite. Yeah, Um, but still. But I am disappointed that my ally was not the only female member of the panel who was a Labour MP. Very disappointing. Very disappointing. The I'm a feminist but part is the I'm a feminist but, I went on question time 
And really, my only set to was with the only other woman. That's not true. I went quite hard after Jenrick, who is a... But I didn't go after him personally. And his Wikipedia entry is only scandals and... Not only. <gasps> it is almost exclusively scandals and misuse of power and Ooh, letting Tory donors develop enormous things and get away with all sorts. So I didn't go after him personally, which I could have and I wanted to. So I if you listen, Robert Jenrick, and you're definitely not, <laughs> uh, I I feel like I was very nice to you. I more went after the government, admittedly, in your direction. There we go. Do you know who was awesome on Question Time was John Burkow. I mean, not surprisingly, he's the Speaker of the House. Um, yeah. And I always used so. to say he's my favourite Tory. I don't think he's a Tory anymore. And his speed of thought, he speaks like other people write. Wow. Every sentence has the right number of clauses and phrases, extremely precise vocabulary. He speaks so fast and so passionately and just lands like an expert pilot landing a plane at the end of a sentence. Wow. I've never seen anything like it. I was quite taken. Yeah, I bet you were. It's really, really impressive, isn't it, when somebody can speak in a way that really makes you listen. And it's it's a skill that needs to be practised and practised and practised, I should I mean, imagine. speak of the house. But he's, he was an ally to me as well. He was really great. I loved him. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay, so an unexpected ally. You thought you were going with one person and somebody else ended up being yeah. your Yeah, and listen, your that, teammate. if you're listening, I'm sure we'd be great friends. I hope the policing bill hasn't come between us because uh, I still want Labour to win. And I, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I hope... I hope things go well for you. From a variety of bedrooms and kitchens via Zoom, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Susanna Fielding, and our very special guest, Pandora Sykes, talking about authenticity. Yeah, yeah, you do. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis White. With me is Susanna Fielding and we're talking about authenticity. Hello, Susanna Fielding. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. It's such a delight to have you on the show. And do you know, you co-hosting makes me feel a bit like Alan Partridge, especially, <laughs> especially with this oversized mic and headphones. I can feel I mean, the weather's just- coming. You surely looked a little bit more glamorous in your life, I think. But I'm sat in a padded box, so I have also looked a bit more glamorous than I do at the moment. Are you in a wardrobe? <laughs> well, no, I'm in what I'm very proud to say is my own vocal booth um, built by... I mean, this is quite feminist. Me and my this boyfriend built it. This is quite Partridge, it. your own vocal booth. <laughs> It is. Life imitating art. Me and my boyfriend built it together um, over a, over a very rainy week in uh, January, and um, yeah, I'm very proud of it. And it's got padding on the walls, and I feel very safe in here. It's like a womb. Do you, in your vocal booth womb, do you <laughs> do you do a lot of voiceovers? Is that why it's there? Not as many as I'd planned. Um, <laughs> Not as many as a vocal booth womb homemade would, would suggest. <laughs> or you warrant. Pre- were you preparing for loads of books to be um, read and now they have disappointingly not flooded in in the way that your booth would demand? 
<laughs> I was expecting lots more very overpaid um, voiceovers for commercials. But uh, yeah, they are, I'm sure, incoming. I'm sure once people hear about the vocal booth womb, uh, I'll be inundated. <laughs> well, I'm glad we're giving it a good plug. <laughs> Me too. Um, pictures available on my Instagram. I'll put it all out there. So if you're listening and you have a product you would like advertised or in fact a novel you would like read out, perhaps it's not published, but you think people should hear it. Susanna Fielding is available. Please contact her at Insta Twaddle. That's what I call it. Insta Twaddle. <laughs> hashtag Vocal Booth Womb. womb. That's, yes, that's but can right. can you do dulcet tones? Can you say vocal booth womb in dulcet tones so that people want to buy your vocal services? Please contact me at Vocal Booth Womb. <gasps> so good. It's so good. Much. I would buy something from you now. Where do, who, seriously, though, who's your voice agent? Um, Sue Terry Voices. Sue Terry Voices. So we don't go to wonderful. Vocal Booth Womb. But I feel like that should be set up now. I feel like you should set up the Instagram account because people are going to want it. And I feel like That's you true. actually are going to get more work if you I if do. you quickly make the Instagram account Vocal Booth Womb. And if you don't, someone else will make it because they'll hear it on this. And they'll exactly. make it as a comedy account. So you sort of need to now. That's right. It'll be gone. My millions have slipped through my fingers. I mean, this is oh, this is your big one. This is this is your be, big opportunity. It? Thank you, Deborah. <laughs> um, now you're a very well-known actor, but recently you have really hit the big time by becoming Alan Partridge's co-host. And if you are an international listener and you don't know who Alan Partridge is, you are in for an absolute treat. Although a friend of mine told me recently he tried to show an American friend Alan Partridge. And he realised this American friend wasn't laughing because he was just like, well, this is just what British people are like. <laughs> he was like, he was like, I, yeah, but this is, this is just what your, this is what your telly's like. And he could not really see the difference between parody and life. I mean, he's got a point, to be fair. I feel like the longer Alan Partridge has gone on, the more it's become like reality and the more we watch people like him on our screens for all too regularly. Alan Partridge, by the way, if you don't know, if you do live, I mean, you will know if you live in Britain, but if you don't, he is a sort of hapless presenter and he himself is, let's say, not cursed with self-awareness. I'd say that's a very polite and delicate way of putting it. Yeah, exactly. He's, played, um, he's played the by king the, of it, brilliant Steve Coogan. He is a phenomenal actor and comedian. Yeah. And he recently hosted an event about the environment that I went to. So it mm. seems like he cares about some good things too. I didn't know about that. What was that then? It was like an Extinction Rebellion event hosted, oh. co-hosted. in. North- I'm, I'm so sorry. It feels like now you weren't invited. It does feel like I wasn't invited. I mean, maybe it was before lockdown. So it must have been, everything was before lockdown now. So I say recently. And what I mean is definitely over a year and a half ago. Yeah, I was going to say it must have been because COVID slightly overtaken the environment as a topic, hasn't it? Sadly. I mean, well, COVID has probably slowed down the worst, yeah, or taken all the planes out of the sky for a start. Yeah, there's some benefit there and nature has slightly begun to recover. But then my biggest fear is the amount of plastic we're producing. Like it genuinely gives me cold sweats when I see how much plastic is just being scrunched up and chucked in bins. And you just think, where's that all going to go? Well, apparently the masks as well. Apparently a a university did a study about the masks that we use, you know, the disposable ones, and they're giving off some kind of noxious fumes or something. And they're also, if you don't rip the elastic off, they're immediately choking wildlife and sea life and stuff like that. So you must oh rip the elastics God. off. 
We are just the scourge of the earth, human beings, aren't we? We're, we're pretty awful as it goes. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I was walking around today. Actually, for the first time, I went into into town, um, into Soho, and I was thinking, wow, at least fifty percent of people have d- disposable masks on. Like, oh, where are they all going to end up? Yeah, it's a bit terrifying. Well, I am hopeful that we've learned some lessons from COVID and we'll take them forward. Hopeful, yeah, Susanna. Me too. I'm not hopeful in a way that I'm ecstatic, but I, I feel like maybe. Yes, maybe. I like to think so. I like to think so. There has been fundamental change within all of us. It's just kind of what we do with it now, isn't it? Please, God, that we don't just race back into the ever-increasing spiral towards decadence, hedonism, destruction and death. Yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> Um, Now, we're talking about authenticity today, and you're an actor. I am, that's right. How much does authenticity play? I mean, the the piece you're doing with Alan Partridge is comedy, but the idea is you're the authentic person sitting next to the highly mannered construct that is Alan Partridge. And I don't mean that is Steve Coogan playing Alan Partridge, that I mean is Alan Partridge putting on this performance and thinking he's somebody he's think not understanding how he comes across yeah. um, with all his embarrassing crassness and the way he sometimes it cuts you off and mansplains things to you. Mm-hmm. How much of your real life have you brought to that role? Well, it's interesting because uh, you're right in some senses that I am playing the more authentic person on the sofa, but then am I really because I'm playing a woman who is making everything look really easy. She's smiling. She's being um, socially appropriate. She's saying all the right things, laughing at people's jokes. Is that authentic? Probably not. It's it's your part. You're very funny in it, though. I like that you're very funny in it and you're not playing a straight woman to his funny man. Yeah, that is extremely refreshing. I, I, I did, and I'm sure most um, female actors will vouch for this, that you can spend a lot of time being the foil to um, men's jokes. So this was really, really exciting to get a part like this where I get to not only kind of get my own gags, but also kind of um, slam dunk him sometimes as well. Um, so, yeah, there's there's bits of authenticity, but then, you know, I think Jenny does what we've all had to do at times, which is smile and laugh along to things that we don't necessarily agree with or think are particularly interesting. You're very real in it, though. It feels to me like you could be, I think often those things, they're very uh, presentational and it's just on the ludicrous side of parody, which is great as well. But you do look believably like you're on a morning show. Like I (laughs) I absolutely believe that you could equally do the one show with a very similar performance. Well, thank you. That's very nice of you. I have been doing, obviously, quite a few um, interviews with the release of the second series and lots of people have said, is it something you'd like to do? And truthfully, it really is. Like, I would love, I don't think I'd want to do live TV, if I'm being completely honest. I've been behind the scenes on a few of those things for research and for interviews myself. And I think it's absolutely terrifying, the amount of plates you're spinning. But well, I also, think- you can just screw that up. Massively, and I people mean, do. Yeah, absolutely. what if you just said "cunt" accidentally, or it's or in a way that likely? I mean, it could happen, and it then it's really over. Happen. Then it's exactly. Or you could then it's over. Misspeak in one way or another, and it's just now with Twitter, it's just a deluge. Yeah, it's out there, isn't it? I mean, I was on um, a program recently and made a comment about Argos, and I've had sleepless nights ever since. I'm just waiting for Argos to come and get me. 
It, it could happen the t- well, with tiny pens. Tiny. I was going to say you'd have to be in a cellar for them to come and get you, and then it would take them ages. I'm in the uh, vocal womb. I'm safe. <laughs> vocal booth womb. Our guest today is a writer, journalist, and broadcaster. She was the co-creator and co-host of the highly acclaimed podcast, The Hilo. Sadly, no more. We loved The Hilo. And the host of the podcast, Doing It Right, which tied in with her debut essay collection, How Do We Know We Are Doing It Right? Her latest podcast, The Missing, looks into the cases of the long-term missing and asks the listeners to help. Please welcome Pandora Sykes. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight, Pandora Sykes. It's an absolute delight. And I was very impressed by your book, which is a collection of essays. And I was particularly taken with the essay on authenticity. I have been working in the corporate world for a long time. And I hear this all the time, be authentic, bring your whole self to work. And I think they don't mean it. Sometimes I say that when I'm doing a keynote for them. I go, they don't mean that. If you brought your whole self to work, you just call someone a cunt and you would be fired within 25 minutes. What they mean is bring your best, more of your best self to work and leave your worst self for those who deserve it, your family. (laughs) And the truth is my authentic self, because they bang on all the time about authenticity. And I'm like, yeah, of course we should basically say who we are and, you know, be who we are and say what we mean. Of course, I'm not anti-authenticity, not saying be fake, but I am saying authenticity is very limiting because if you're authentically crap at something, you're kind of stuck with it. And my authentic self likes to eat cake and lie down. That's who I am. That was me as a kid. My sister would want to run around in the garden. I would want to eat cake and lie down with a book. My best self likes to eat fruit and do yoga. And I find if I just do the things my best self does, if I just do that, that becomes habitual. And my hypothesis is your authentic self is just your habitual self. And many people get stuck with an authentic self that isn't really serving them because they developed that habit to survive or to protect themselves. They developed the habit of looking down at the floor when they're speaking and looking up occasionally to check in with the other person to make sure that is it, is it okay for me to be here when they were in sixth form to get a bully to leave them alone or to get boys to like them or girls to like them or something like that. They developed it at a time when maybe it meant survival or maybe it meant comfort or maybe it meant it was the only way to get through that period. But now they're kind of stuck with it like an old coat that served them when it was raining and freezing. And But now they're too scared to take it off because they think I'll get wet and cold again, but they won't. And I sort of think with those behaviours, it's thank the coat. The coat got you through something. Don't beat yourself up for having that coat on. Thank that coat, but then slip it off and find a new habitual self, which is authentic. And so I was so interested to read your take on authenticity. Can you tell us a little bit more about it, Pandora? So I subscribe to the idea that we're not just one self, that we're a compilation of selves. And so those kind of selves, the self that you present depends on who you're with. So your family will see one self, your lover will see another self, People you work with will see another one. The barista at the coffee shop or the guy at Sainsbury's is going to see a different one and so on and so forth. The thing that I think is kind of fascinating about our obsession with authenticity, because as you say, it's a buzzword now. And I also agree, 
don't bring your whole self to work. You need to have some stuff that's not at work, that's just your own. But the problem with the obsession with authenticity is that because so much of our life is now distilled into online, particularly in the last year, the internet does not allow, and social media profiles does not allow for this compilation of selves. You sort of have to pick one so that it makes sense. And I think that's where people get themselves really tangled in knots because when that's your primary way to relate to the world as it has been in the last year it can make you feel like you're being um inconsistent or other people I don't know if you've noticed this but I'll notice people saying well that's really unlike her or she posted this I didn't really think she stood for that or I didn't think she was into that and it depends what medium you're using but I think what's happened is on Twitter you see something that the writer James Mumford called package deal ethics. This idea that you subscribe to a set of beliefs. If you believe one thing, you believe to another, you believe in another thing, which I think is really dangerous. You know, this idea that everyone on the left believes this, everyone on the right believes this, because then that just how on earth do you meet in the middle if you're just kind of tick, tick, tick to all the same things. And then on Instagram, I think what it means is there's just so much judgment around, um, well, why is she dressing like that? I thought she liked, you know, I thought she liked dressing modestly. Like, what, why is she doing that now? That's not her. That's not her authentic self. Are you but talking about Billie Eilish? Because I was talking about her before. No. People freaked no. out. And I was like, well, she's older she's and also she might going through a phase, you know. I find that really weird. And um, I found it really odd the way it was equated to feminism. But I guess every, everything, well, everything is about feminism just because everything's about everything. But she's 19. So I found that quite strange, this idea that she couldn't just feel like wearing a corset one day and she might go back to wearing a T-shirt. But that's kind of what I mean. People had decided that that was Billie Eilish's shtick to wear oversized T-shirts. And so there's sort of this element of feeling betrayed when she puts something maybe a bit more traditionally sexy or a bit more male gazy. Um, and I think this is really dangerous, especially in regards to women, because women have been long told to sort of tick a box um, and stay in their lane. And the authenticity thing is good in a way, like Susanna and I were just saying off air that, you know, it shouldn't be really weird to say to someone if you're on your period. Like, you know, we like everyone knows now that women have periods yet yeah, kind of going into work and being like, morning, I feel really shit today. I've got my period. It's still like a bit, ooh, bit brave, but out there. I had a so- writer's room that was all women and we were saying, it's amazing because someone would just go, oh, I'm really not feeling very well. I've got my period. And someone would go, Advil, I've got a banana. Do you want some chocolate? <laughs> Why don't you lie on the floor? We'll get your hot water bottle and you can just, you know, if you've got any thoughts, you can say from the floor. And it was really interesting that that's, oh, that was absolutely acceptable. And there were people in that room who've been in so many writers' rooms who went, this has never happened before. If you said, because mostly it's it's a predominantly male environment. And yeah. guys would go, what? Oh, yuck. Not all of them. Hashtag not all men and are not all writers. I'm sure there's some rooms where you could say it, but we feel we can't because we've been conditioned that way. Um, well, I think I think that's where it's useful to, not useful, kind of mandatory to bring your full self. I think, you know, to be able to say that you are really unwell because you have your period or to be able to say that you are 
struggling with your mental health rather than pretending you have a sick bug or to be able to say that you have children and so you need to leave to go pick up your child rather than pretending that the plumber's coming because it's kind of more socially acceptable for you to have a leak Mm. than you to have a leaky toddler that you need to pick up from school. So I think just not having to deny fairly obvious parts of yourself is a really useful thing. And of course, if you're not white, I think it becomes much more important to inclusion for people to be able to bring their full selves to work because there are all those, you know, really traditional office dress codes of um, your hair has to be worn like this or, you know, you have to wear, I don't know. I I remember working once as a secretary and you had to wear a skirt above the knee. But if you dress modestly, that's, you know, that's really offensive. So I think that is where it's great. I think this idea that you have to be 100% the same static self all the time is completely impossible. And I think that's something that's been really exacerbated by the internet. That was a really long answer, wasn't it? No, I love it. Great answer. Really, really thought provoking. Yeah, I've always think we tribe up that you are a different self out with your best mates. You know, the the kind of mates that you might only like, might be girls from women, hashtag feminism, from uni or your first job or school or something, you know, like a bunch of mates that you, you know, when you get together, you go out for a night, you are going to wear different things, drink differently, tell different stories, use a different language than you will having a Sunday lunch with your in-laws. Neither of those are inauthentic. It's just that you know how to gear shift and you are one sort of daughter-in-law and you are one sort of matron of honour on a hen night, you know, like, and, and you're not being fake in either environment. You're just tribe, what I call tribing up. You, you, this is a different tribe and it has different rules and we are very tribal human beings. Yeah, you're adapting. And I think that's also quite important. Like that's quite an important part of getting older, isn't it? Is realising what's kind of suitable for some social occasions or professional situations and what's not, which is why alcohol can be very dangerous because I think that's exactly what happens is you, <laughs> the adaption goes the wrong way. That's why Christmas office parties go wrong, I think. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Well, I often think that alcohol is the only way that grown-ups can play and get back into that playful state. And if we do, when I used to do a lot of improv, you didn't need to drink a lot because you were always in that playful state, but it's a way that grown-ups can be children and it's socially acceptable to like steal a traffic cone or jump, you know, <laughs> d- walk a along a bum, fence or just, yeah, yeah. drunk down an ex. <laughs> It's interesting, as an actor, you spend a lot, well, I spend a lot of time being essentially authentic because I'm trying to play the truth of a scene, but also inauthentic in that I'm not really myself when I'm on TV. So my mum doesn't recognise me. And actually, I don't ever really get recognised, partly because no one really knows who I am. But especially when this show is on, like, no one recognises me because I don't look like the people I play. I I spend my time in a boiler suit, in jeans, with no makeup on, and I really, that's that's the real me. Like, mud under my fingernails kind of vibe. Do you think if you came out of your vocal booth womb, more people might recognise you? <laughs> is it possible you sit at the end of your garden waiting for books to read? I think I think come out. I think you look like you do on the telly. No, I like, you do. I like that's my dream life, sitting at the end of my garden waiting for books to read. That's that's where I, <laughs> that's the dream. I don't I don't need any more than that. <laughs> Be paid to read books. That's the brilliant thing about being a voiceover. I, 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 you know, having a voiceover agent is it's you true. can get paid to read books. And if the that's books true. are good, I mean that is a winnity win McWinnison's. 
I do often think I should put pictures of myself on Instagram. I mean, I'm not a big fan of Instagram generally, I have to say. I have to really force myself to engage with that side of things. But I do often think I should take a picture of myself, how I really look this morning on a Tuesday morning with a spot on my cheek and no makeup and greasy hair. I really do think I should do that. But I don't do it, which is interesting, isn't it? Why not? People do do it. They say Instagram versus real life and then they put one picture of themselves looking glamorous and then another picture of themselves with a spot and then they go real life and I'm like yeah but I kind of know that because I've (laughs) I've met really glamorous actors and I've seen them doing you know running around and I'm like yeah you don't you don't look as glamorous when you haven't had a full team of people making you look like that when people go to the Oscars and stuff they've had a team for a day I would look like that if I had a team for a day my problem is I don't have a team for a day it's true. Not not yet. It could happen. Next time you go on question time, you better demand it, I think, Deborah. There was no hair or makeup and they blamed it on COVID, but I think it's budget cuts. I completely um, agree. But Pandora, um, your feeling is your authentic self is sometimes masked by social media. You talk about this. In this chapter of the book, you say you've stopped being a product spokesperson, even though that was lucrative and that your relationship with Instagram makes you feel a bit sick sometimes, even though you know it's like important now for, you know, podcast listeners and that kind of thing. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? The product partnerships or whatever they're called, Spon- yeah, SponCon. I stopped doing that a couple of years ago just because I didn't want to feel kind of tethered to my social media. So I didn't want to monetize it at all. Mm. I wanted to think, even though I wouldn't do this realistically, I liked the idea that I could just shut it down at any time and I wouldn't lose my job. Um, Mm. I just felt a bit scared about having it contained in an app that I don't like checking too much. And I just don't like it checking too much just because I think this is sort of my fundamental issue with social media and why I think anxious people are becoming more anxious is that I just don't know how good it is for your brain to wake up in the morning and know what a hundred people have had for breakfast and what shoes they're wearing to work before you've had a conversation with anyone else Possibly before you've had a wee or yourself, possibly before you had a wee, before you've even put your own shoes on that day. You've got in your head and I'm I'm quite an introvert in that I'm really loud when I'm somewhere, but when I'm on my own, I need to be on my own and I need lots of time on my own. Mm. And so I found that I was feeling really kind of like, literally like I was at a really noisy party all the time. Mm. So I think, so for me, just kind of quietening, it is really important uh, to feel like the clarity of the world we live in and to be in conversation with myself. Um, I've forgotten the other part of your question. <laughs> oh, just that you said that sometimes your relationship with it makes you feel a bit nauseous and you like you would like to... It, it's oh, what it's you're expressing weird, here. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird... It's just a bit of a weird... It's just a weird thing, isn't it? So I try not to mm. think about it too much because... Um, Essentially, you know, I've got quite a few Instagram followers and I'm not I'm not really sure why, because I don't lead a very interesting life. So I try not to think about it too much because otherwise it, I don't know, just freaks you out a bit, I think. I love that way you described it, though, about being like a noisy party. I can really relate to that. And I'm in the process of leaving my phone downstairs at night. I've gone back to a good old fashioned alarm clock Mm. and I put that on. And so the first thing I do in the morning is work out how I feel, not how other people feel about me. Mm. And 
what other people need and want. And it, it, even those tiny little tweaks. I don't have the apps on my phone. I have to log in. Yeah, me neither. Right? So, yeah, I, but I, I'm, I'm with you, I think. You're both it, so much better than I am. <laughs> no, it depends on how about... it affects you, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. But that's interesting what you say, Deborah, because people do think there's a kind of, they do attach a moral value to that. Mm. And there have been people that have found it slightly annoying before when I, you know, have said, oh, I don't use social media very much or I airplane my phone most evenings, sometimes for whole weekends. And um, people see it as some sort of like, you know, going back to the old days, thinking I'm above everything else type thing. Mm. And I think that's just because we equate people who use social media a lot as kind of like time wasters. But my husband is on, he, you know, if he could, he would be on Instagram as a full-time job, like nine hours of scrolling a day. He'd just love it. He'd love it, loves really? the memes. So he gets a lot out of it. He doesn't find it Re- draining yeah. or make him no, make him really enjoys it. But he's not... Um, wow. He's very sure of who he is. He has like a rock hard, rock hard. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Go rock on. solid, rock solid, a rock solid sense of self. Save that in the nick of time. <laughs> I knew that I was bet not. He has, that I bet he has nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Say no more. Say no more, Squire. <laughs> no, he's too busy on social media for any of that. Um, you know, so it makes him it makes him feel really good. Whereas I, I think if I spent nine hours scrolling. I'd, I'd just go, hey, well, you'd, you'd have to come and find me from sort of the outer yeah. Hebrides where, where I'd oh, run in a same. panic. Tom Selinsky's like that. He could sit online and read nine hours of insults about himself and not be affected by any of it. Just find it a curiosity. <gasps> yeah. He has such a sense of rock is hard. Is that a man thing? Yeah, yeah just maybe like, it is. Just, yeah. Self-esteem, just big. You can either have a big ego and low self-esteem, which is the terrible diva. um, uh, (laughs) For that combo. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's the worst combo to have. Big ego, low self-esteem. So um, a big star and nobody loves me. And (laughs) I need an audience and why they're not clapping. Um, And that's the worst one to have. Or you can have small ego, low self-esteem and then that's probably terrible things have happened to you and you're not going to make any fuss because you think I don't need to take up much space and those people we should pay more attention to and seek out more because they're not going to ask for anything. And some people have a big ego and high self-esteem and they can change the world. They can do amazing things. So the question is, because the ego is the creative urge, it's the sexual urge, it's the self-actualization urge. There's nothing wrong with having a big ego if you've got the self-esteem to support it and if you're not going to if if your ego isn't the only thing, if you love other egos, if you care about other people's egos. Um, so I think probably Tom has, I don't know if Tom's got a big ego, actually. I think he's got a sizable ego, a good five inches <laughs> and high self-esteem. But the high self-esteem is the thing where he just doesn't care what other people think. He doesn't care what I think. He just doesn't, I mean, he'd care if I thought he'd done something immoral or something. He doesn't not care about anything. But in terms of how he looks or how he, who he fundamentally is, he's totally sorted. Is that ego or is that conviction or even integrity? I think it's high self-esteem. He's got a med- I think he's got a medium-sized ego where he's like, yeah, I deserve to take up space in the world, but he's got high self-esteem. I don't, I mean, it's annoying. I think I'm seeking integrity. That's my new favourite thing. Oh, oh tell rather me more. Rather than, but, yeah, rather than authenticity. Because I think if you've got, yes, 
Yes, because I think authenticity, spoiler alert, is is kind of fruitless because it's just really whoever it's like being your most authentic self in that moment. Mm. So it's quite changeable. And I also think trying to be authentic the whole time is a bit of a distraction from important stuff. It's mm. very kind of solipsistic and I don't know what the greater good comes mm. out of it. Whereas the people I like my friends who I think are, you know, godly and that I worship are all people that have I think really strong integrity in that they kind of know what they want and they know what they deserve and they know what they have to give and they sort of stick to it unequivocally they don't sort of dilly dally shilly shally should I do this am I this am I that it's just like they just do it and they've got that balance of keeping themselves safe and keeping other people safe and just I don't know maybe that's conviction Mm. I don't know I'm going with integrity for now. Integrity and conviction. I feel like... We need to Google. We're not in a massive age of integrity and conviction. I think we're a bit mutable no, because we are... that's important. Yeah, so we need to foster it and grow it because we don't, yeah. we don't have it for nothing these days. What Susanna said was interesting to me, that she's not looking at her phone first thing because she wants to figure out how she feels before she reads how people feel about her. And I think our integrity and our conviction is probably something that is under attack from too many opinions about our opinion. So if you're holding, you're thinking, oh, I thought that. Then you read all of these opinions and think, oh, maybe I'm wrong. And it's important to be open, to learn and to be educated. My God, what I've learned last year, you know, in the last five years about my privilege is huge. So I want to be open to the world and I want my views changed. I want to join conversations hoping to have my mind changed. I think that's an important thing. I listen to podcasts hoping to have my mind changed not in the way that it would undermine anyone else's humanity. And I think those discussions are different. But I think it's so easy now to think, oh, this is how I feel, or this is what I think, or this is what I want to do. And then to have that immediately brought into question by too many different opinions. And this brings me into the part of your book about choice, which I would like to read out, if that's okay. Not I should on. really I'm be doing this, Deborah. Read it, but I think Just it's no, no, no. I like this. I like this. If only I could screenshot it and send it to Susanna Feeling, it would be read exactly. from the vocal, the vocal booth. booth. I wish vocal Susanna booth. Fielding had read my audiobook from her booth. Ah, oh, from her womb. Next booth. time, okay, in her womb <laughs> booth. So, uh, this is the part of the book that I found very interesting, and I wanted to read out. The paradox of choice is a theory coined by the psychologist Barry Schwartz to describe how choices become just as much a straitjacket as a liberation. The official dogma of all Western industrial societies runs like this, he says. The more choice people have, the more freedom they have. And the more freedom they have, the more welfare they have. Having no choice is unbearable, he writes in his book of the same name. But having too much choice can be dizzying, especially when it's over things that shouldn't matter. No one's life was ever improved by 175 different salad dressings or scrolling through 88 pages of black dresses. Schwartz's theory feels especially significant for millennial women brought up thinking that since choice is good, it's only good. That with maximum choice comes maximum chance of getting life right. And I think that really interested me because I'd just been listening to this podcast called Deeply Human by a singer called Decker, actually. She's doing this fantastic podcast. If you get a chance, listen to it. She just It's little half hour episodes where she delves into the science of something. Hmm. So it could be the science of menopause. And she looks at how whales are menopausal, the mammal, not the country. Um, <laughs> slash principality, depending on your... Uh, glad you cleared that up. But she does one about choice or covers choice in one of them. And she's talking to a scientist who's saying that our brain 
is only designed to choose between about seven things, five to seven things, and it cannot cope beyond that. It just doesn't know. And so actually you put it under great strain and there is no right answer at a certain point. So exactly what you're saying, because I've been shopping for, you know, trying to do the flat up a bit. I've talked about already, you know, given I'm not going anywhere this summer and it's still a bit lockdown-y and it'll ease out, just be nice to have some nice chairs outside people can come and sit on. Do you know how many anti-gravity outdoor recliners there are? And I think, well, what if I don't like it? Then I've got to send it back. And these colours, and are they too bright? And da, da, da. It's impossible. It's impossible. And I mean, that's a ridiculous thing. And I'm lucky to be in a position to be able to afford an outdoor recliner slash have any outdoor space in London. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I think this is a really insightful piece, Pandora, about choice. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I think it's really important to always caveat it with that having no choice, as I wrote and you just read, is unbearable. Mm. There's obviously never the suggestion that there shouldn't be choice and hopefully more than one choice. But I do think the amount of choices in almost everything now is a bit ridiculous because I think you spend so much time or a lot of people spend so much time weighing up the choices rather than actually making them. And if you've got less choices, apparently you're more likely to make a better one rather than there being so many things that you sort of just pluck one out of the sky in the end. Oh, I remember the the one up the podcast that was on, on The Deeply Human. It was on the episode on dating because okay, uh, apparently it was, about, it was about Tinder mm. and this psychologist was saying, or some kind of research scientist was saying, your brain can't cope. So people are now just swiping and swiping and swiping and they're having little chats with everyone. And the reason they cannot settle is there's too much choice. And he said, if you've talked to seven people on an app, you need to go on a date with one of them. Yeah. He said, it doesn't matter if you like them or not. It doesn't matter. Just go on a date with one of them. Just make that choice. Because a lot of people spend hours and hours and hours talking to people and they never meet anyone in real life. There's a, um, the, I actually can't remember who said it. And I, and I did write about it in my book. So that's not great. But there's this idea that instead of maximizing something, you sort of, you, it's like the satisficer. So you make a satisfying choice rather than what you see as the best one. And that's, it's sort of that whole like Derek Winnicott's whole theory on the good enough. Yeah. You hear it a lot about parenting, the good enough parent. So that's what I aim for as a parent, just to be good enough. And actually that's what I'm trying to aim for just across the board, just to be good enough. But when there are a million different choices, I think you think, okay, well, if there are that many choices, and this is definitely true in dating, uh, you think, there will be someone perfect out there. And talking to my friends now using apps, like I got together with my husband before dating apps came around and talking to them now, there's all these different things, all these different criteria that I just wouldn't have thought of until they're then available for you on an app and they sort of osmotically get into your brain and you start to think that that should be part of the selection process. What kind of things? And well, you've already got, so on the app, you know, you've already seen them from all these different angles. You have their hobbies written down in front of you rather than having kind of organic conversation. Because yeah. on a date, I, I don't know about you guys, but when I used to go on a date, I wouldn't say like, what, what do hobbies? you love doing in your spare time? <laughs> yeah, you just wouldn't. You might find that out, I don't know, years later, probably a bit dangerous. Yeah. But it was it was just a bit more... Um, organic, whereas I feel like you've got all that information presented straight away, but with none of like the sort of charm and interruption. So you might think, oof, 
I don't like men in orange t-shirts who like fishing. Yeah. So that's absolutely not for me. Yes. But if you'd met true. him at a party and he'd made you laugh. You'd like orange t-shirts you, well, you fishing. Wouldn't, that wouldn't come into it. And then or you, you wouldn't. Apparently you fishing. Yeah. I've yeah. been fishing. I'll have a go. I, and I'm never going to go and that's fine. I wonder if in regards to this thing of too much choice, especially with people, I know a lot of people that have met people and stayed with them because of lockdown. And I wonder if that's because the choice mm. got limited. You kind of knew Or is too. it because they built you a booth? <laughs> a vocal wind booth? Totally agree. Several of my friends have... Yeah, I, I mean, and, and for me, it's found real love. People who've really struggled to meet anyone for years and years and years, mm. they seem to have, I mean, a, a weird number. I would love to know. I would love to be able to do a mm. survey and find out how many people that's true for. But And I think it probably is because you've kind of gone... Right, well, I'm going to really give this a proper go and not keep swiping because I can't go and meet lots of other people. I can't go to a bar next week and meet someone else or go to a party and forget that I was supposed to go on a date with them and and cancel. Um, So I think our whole attitude to choice has has changed, hasn't it? Well, I I think like lots of those, the smaller choices of life have been taken away, like where to go on holiday, who to go to the pub with, what to see at the cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you're left with is quite big choices. So lots of people I know have made really quite radical choices in the last year. Uh, they've moved jobs. They've uh, moved out of cities or moved back to cities. I know a lot of people who have broken up. I know lots of people who have got together. Yeah. Lots of people having children. Uh, people who have decided that children actually isn't for them. Like I've heard of more big lifestyle choices in the last year mm. from people I know than I have in sort of five years. And I think that's because you can't like run away from yourself. Yeah, there's no distraction. Yeah, not in a normal yeah, that's way. That's so true. And that is where we're meeting our authentic selves in the mirror and on Zoom every single day. It's just like, I'm only with me, so I kind of have to get to know me. And and if I don't like parts that's of me, I have true. to change me. Um, what Decca said about the, and her guest said about sat- the satisfizer maximizer is that some people in life are satisfizers. They just go, choice of three, let's go with this one and let's back this horse all the way. Some people are maximizers. They have to look at every single option, only the best, only the perfect for me, blah, 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 blah. And that may not be about being rich either. That could be which kebab shop has got the best reviews, you know, and I'm only, you know, I'm going to seek out this particular thing. And what she said is most people think on things like choosing a restaurant, be a satisfizer. Where we're in Charlotte Street, do you want to go to Oaxaca or do you want to, you know, or we could walk around a corner if you fancy a cheaper chiffon Nando's or we could, oh, there's a new Greek place opened over here. And one of those is going to be fine. And on that, you should be a satisfizer. And most people believe on big things like jobs and life partners and, you know, where you're going to live and things like that, you should be a maximizer and spend ages. But the science isn't really there for that. It's more there for be a satisfizer and then make that choice work and invest in that choice. And the problem with being a maximizer on the big things is you're with somebody, but you're always going, there could be someone better. And while you've got that could be someone better mentality, you're not really creating the ultimate dream relationship here. You're not investing everything in living in the area that you're living in because you're constantly, instead of going, oh, there's a lovely place over there. Oh, I found a new park the other day and I didn't know it was five blocks in the other direction. I've never been that way. Instead, you're always sort of looking online for where else you could be living. So instead of maximising the choice you made, you're searching out all the time. Did either of you watch The One 
which was, I think, a Netflix series. I, I actually didn't watch it, but the concept is really fascinating, isn't it? That a per- I watched a bit of it. Oh, you did you? Okay, mm. yeah. So an ideal person is created for you. Is that right? So they find out through DNA who your kind of ideal matches in the world. And lots of people break up with partners they're very happy with because they know that there's someone perfect out there for them. But I think that's where the fallacy is, isn't it? Is you don't have to believe that the person you're with is like the best, the the genetically best match in the world. It's It just has to be as simple as whether you're happy with them for then. It's, it, I don't think there's anything wrong with the satisficer with relationships. I think the maximizer is where it maybe gets a bit wrong because then you're expecting so much Perfection. from someone else. Yeah, I don't think it makes you very happy, the maximizer avenue in any in any area, I don't think. It was Paul Dolan who was talking about that, who's a behavioural scientist, and he made headlines a couple of years ago at Hay Literary Festival when he said that women without children and partners were happier. And it kind of was quite, you know, the papers took it quite sort of, it was a bit of a scandal. But I think what he meant by that, which was really interesting, is it's kind of how you define happiness, because men who get married are said to be less stressed and women who get married are said to be more stressed. And I that's get just that. about that's just Especially about the labor in the mix. It's just about Literally. the emotional and household labor, isn't it? Yeah. But then it's like, does happiness equate with stress? Exactly. Is, so is I didn't necessarily stress. like mm, I wasn't necessarily convinced by that sort of equation of happiness. Yeah. Yeah. I get that though. I think that probably is true. They say that married men are happier and married women are unhappier. And but I think that's more to do with the patriarchy and the way that marriages We've been conditioned yeah. to think what marriage is and who should take what share of, as you say, the emotional labour or the parenting and that kind of thing. I wonder if they did that study in 20 years, whether the results would be quite different. Mm. I think relationship balance, a bit like I said in my, you know, I'm a feminist, but I think the idea that um, it's it's all down to the woman to kind of run the household, unless that's a choice that an individual couple makes, I don't think that's going to be the norm. I See, I've always been... And, and I, my, my flat's really nice. It's beautifully decorated. And the living space is always nice. But my bedroom through lockdown was like landfill. I just, I'm not a tidy person. Like it was like a feminist book landfill. Because I get sent every feminist book, every every book, that could, anti-feminist book, book written by a woman that could be, because I get sent everything. And I want to read them all, but I don't always have time, of course, to read them all. And they end up in this big pile. And then if everything's messy anyway, what's the point of putting my socks in the hamper? I might as well just throw them on the floor and take no, them off. No, 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 Deborah. Et cetera. <laughs> well, you couldn't have your pieces on it. But this won't work. This won't work at all. I went to my hypnotherapist and said, uh, I started doing hypnotherapy for a bunch of stuff while in lockdown because I'm, I'm working, I'm doing DIY on myself, basically, because I thought good. I'm never going to have this time again. I hope. Um and so I said to my hypnotherapist, and I've been working on other things which have been longer hauls, working, but longer hauls. Mm-hmm. But I just said to her, I really want everything to be organized. She went, oh, that'll just happen. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, but don't I need any exercises? No. Whereas with other things and other outlooks and things, she talks to me for a long time. She gives me ideas. She gives me new habits to try. And then she hypnotizes me every week. With this, she went, it's just going to happen. Because all the other stuff will fall into place. Is that the idea? She said, you'll just become a tidy person. It's just going to happen. And I was like, okay. And she never concentrated on it. And then I started to go, I need the picture to look different. I need, And I started imagining what my bedroom would look like if I had a sort of, I mean, it's very cheap and cheerful, but like a storage bench 
and I got some cushions and things that were pretty. And I just started to need everything to go back to how it looked when I built the picture. Mm-hmm. And so now I automatically, when I finished eating or, you know, I have to bring the plates down and put them in the dishwasher. I have to wipe the benches down. I keep sorting things. I'll come home from dance. I dance in a studio and I put my shoes in my shoe rack because I have a closing shoe rack in my bedroom. <laughs> yes, I do. And I put my shoes back and I know where my shoes are when I go for dance. I go, well, they're in my shoe rack. That's, I mean, my whole life, I have never been someone who would know where my shoes are. I'm like, they could be upstairs, they could be downstairs, they could be under a table. I don't know. How can you? How do are. you explain this then? Because if so, I'd really like this hypnotherapist number. If sorting, if, if a personal DIY is this easy. Sandy Ames hypnotherapist. Every time I talk about her, I accidentally say Sandy Ames hypnotherapist. And I truly believe it's because she's hypnotised me to do her marketing <laughs> for her. She's from New York because I thought, you want snow, you go to the North Pole. Um, <laughs> you want therapy, you go to New York. And everything's on Zoom now anyway. So it doesn't matter where they are. And uh, yeah, it's just done. It's just done. And my friend Jessica Regan, who's been on this podcast and she does uh, the big speeches workshops for us. She's an actress. You probably know, you might know Jessica Regan. She's probably worked a lot of the same theatres and, you know, things that you have. Mm-hmm. The other day she needed to be somewhere and I said, do you want me to get you an Uber? She went, no, I feel like walking because I feel like exercising now. And I went, fucking Sandy Ames. And she went, fucking Sandy Ames hypnotherapist. She said, I could have had a cushy Uber, but I want to walk. And then the guys got some pizza and they said, do you want a piece of pizza? I went, no, I ate earlier. I'm not hungry, so I don't want any pizza. And she looked at me and we just went, fucking Sandy Ames hypnotherapist. Now I don't want pizza, apparently, because I'm not hungry. So we joke about how we don't feel like cake unless we feel like cake. Like I don't think about it. I don't, I, I think I've always been the kind of person that's like, and I've been in this space before. I have visited this place before where I did an, an episode years ago of The Guilty Feminist where I went into, it was a corporate event and I was looking for fuel because I was going to go on stage and I was looking for fruit, for soft fruit, because I was like, I need brain power. Yeah. And when I came off the stage and went back into the same green room, there's this huge cake there. And I realized I hadn't seen the cake because I wasn't looking for it. And my whole life before that, I would have seen the cake, thought I shouldn't have cake because then I'm going to get a sugar crash. I should have the fruit. Oh, but I want the cake. Maybe I'll just have a bit of the cake. I would have had that whole dance in my head and I either would or wouldn't have had the cake and felt good or bad, but I, you know, whatever, inverted commas, nonsense. But I would, and I suddenly thought I didn't, I just didn't see this cake and it was really remarkable, but then it fell away. So I'm doing more sessions with Sandy so I can sustain it. But yeah, it absolutely works because you're getting your conscious to talk to your unconscious. So they're going in the same direction. So if you have anything and does it, that you need to fix. Does it work on sort of, I'm, I mean, not to say that our relationship with food and exercise isn't kind of deep and sometimes traumatic, but things on, on a very deep level, like, I don't know, your relationship with your father or whatever it might be, like, does it work on more of those sorts of things? Ooh, I don't know. You'd have to ask Sandy Ames hypnotherapist, but um, well, I will <laughs> or Google it. Maybe, yeah. maybe. I, I'm mm. sure that she could create some more positive patterns. Interesting. Have you ever had hypnotherapy, Pandora? Yeah, I did um, a session which I wrote about, actually, I think in my book. And I'm trying to remember why I, oh, I was talking about wellness. So it sort of came into me trying to, you know, explore a well mind. The problem I, I have with hypnotherapy is my mind doesn't really stop racing. It's for the same reason that I didn't do hypnobirthing. Is that what it is when you learn breathing yeah. before you give birth? Mm, yeah. 
because I have a really hard time in just shutting my brain and fully kind of passing myself off to a, you know, higher plane. So it didn't hugely work for me. But I'm a big believer in other things like CBT. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Big believer in that. Cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. I think that's a sort of slower version of hypnotherapy almost. It's sort of like it's a more conscious version of hypnotherapy, maybe. Mm. And that once you've repeated something consciously enough, it then goes into your unconscious rather than trying to merge the two. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think I kind of do better with conscious things. And I think finding what works for you is what's important. Totally. I mean, I'm not being paid by Sandy Ames Hypnotherapist, just to be very clear. I've gone, <laughs> I've paid her. I've not, I've recommended her to friends. I'm not being paid by her. But it really has, it's just so weird because now I don't have to think, oh, I should put the dishwasher on I can't be asked I'll do it in the morning I don't have to think that anymore it so just happens great. and I'm just automatically doing it and it is really weird but it sort of makes sense to me someone described it to me as an elephant and a rider the rider we've all seen a rider control an elephant but we also all know that if the elephant wants to go left and the rider wants to go right there's not much the rider can do about it the elephant can run and the rider will fall off or you know the unconscious is the elephant mm. and the conscious is the rider although I told this to Phil Jupiter and he said to me I think I've just got an elephant riding an elephant I said <laughs> And I said it to another man there who was very boring and he went, well, I think I've got a rider riding a rider. He said, I just do everything I want to do. I don't have any impulse control whatsoever. But he was a very dull man. He wasn't, <laughs> let's be honest, he wasn't much beloved comedian and bon viveur Phil Jupiter. He was an accountant. So that does stand to reason. Um, but yeah, in terms of your feminism, if you've got unconscious behaviours that you think are dragging you down or driving you just slowing you down. I just want to be fast for feminism now. Mm, I love it. That's a great tagline. What else in your book, Pandora, would you like to tell us about? Can you tell me just a little bit about the chapter, which is called Looking Forward to Hearing Back? I think that one's quite useful for right now, actually, because people are having a sort of crisis of communication in that I think anecdotally and from what I've read, it seems like a lot of people are thinking, okay, My social life was a bit all over the place. I always felt guilty for not keeping in touch with these people, for, you know, not managing my time well. Sort of how can I do that better when I come out of lockdown? And I think there's also a lot of um, re-entry anxiety going around ahead of the Great Unlock. And something I find quite interesting is something that the anthropologist Robin Dunbar once discovered is that we can't have more than 150 social connections in our lives. Now that sounds like loads, but that means like every social connection from the tangential to the, you know, really, really deep. So the bus driver that you often end up chatting to, uh, you know, that normally drives the bus you take, the lady at the post office, anyone, you you know, people at your child's school, fellow parents, any colleague in the office, that's kind of anyone. And if you think, I don't know what it used to be, but I remember when I was on Facebook And I no longer am, but I remember I had like 800 friends on Facebook. And I'm sure that had just been that early 20s thing. Whenever I met anyone, I just friend them in the hope that, you know, I just remember that you just wanted as many friends on Facebook as possible, which is really, really weird. But I think about that quite often because I think that that kind of bred definitely in my mind, this idea that friends, you know, you wanted as many friends as you could have Mm. friends. It's kind of like the choice thing. Friends are only good 
So why not have um, more of them? And there's a really fascinating book by Priya Parker called The Art of Gathering, where she really sets out kind of the intention of like a successful gathering, that there should be a purpose. Mm. And she even says, and this won't be for everyone because this is very like, oh, what are those books like empowerment, self-help books, you know, where everything's just so thought out. So this might be a bit too thoughty outy, but she says, you know, you should have like a goal for that gathering, something that you want to achieve. I'm not really so into doing that, but I love the idea of like, why am I gathering? Like, why am I gathering with these people? And what is the purpose of that? And I wonder if there could be quite a freedom for people thinking, do you know what? I really like Josie, but we're never going to meet up. We're just going to say we're going to meet up and then we're going to cancel and then we're going to cancel and then we're going to bump into each other at Bob's party and have an awkward chat and make the plan again and then we're going to cancel and then we're going to cancel and then we'll feel really bad about it. And it would, you know, it's just this self-perpetuating cycle of never really wanting to do lots of the things in our diary because if it wasn't for the internet, you probably wouldn't see that person again. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. I think... Culling is a good thing. I it's a horrid word, but it's a horrible word. But I have a on your phone whether you have your favourites. Those I sort of make a mental decision that those are the people that I'm going to actively spend time with. And aside from that, if I don't have time or the real inclination, I have to. I really try to encourage myself not to make those plans. But sometimes it's really nice to meet up with an old friend you haven't seen for a while and you find an amazing, buzzy, old connection or just nostalgia, you know, yeah. meet up with your old improv group or you, you know, and you just find, and that's very specific to me, but you just, you just <laughs> laugh about old times. It makes you feel young again, or maybe it makes you feel old and you think, oh my God, like we haven't been together for so long, but whatever it makes you feel, it does make you feel human. It's true. I am quite sentimental. And I know that feeling of going, oh, God, I should meet up with that person. And actually, I haven't got time and I'm exhausted. But I think I would rather be honest with that person and go. And I have recently a friend asked me to meet up and I just went, I'm really overwhelmed with deadlines at the moment and I'm over anxious and I think I'm going to just hold off. Uh, But I didn't want to make them feel bad. I said, this is completely about me. So rather than saying, oh, yes, that would be lovely and then cancelling on them, Mm. I'd rather say, can we pick this up? That's authentic. Later in the year. That's really authentic, isn't it? I think. Totally agree with that. I think it's about, um, and I'm really sentimental as well. Almost all of my friendships are really, really old ones from when I was a child or from when I was like 10, 11. Almost all my friends have known for a really, really long time. So it's not about kind of dropping people. It's about like what you just said there. I think it's being honest about what your parameters are or mm. that dreadful word of the moment, boundaries. Um, So I sort of decided I was seeking more robust friendships, Mm. um, really kind of digging into and being the best friend I could and sort of accepting their whole self. Because Mm. I think sometimes you can have less tolerance for people when you're trying to keep up with too many people. And you're not as good a friend. You're just not. You're not as good a friend. And I'm sure like lots of people, two of my closest friends have suffered really appalling tragedies in the last year. So I've really wanted to be there for them. And so I definitely felt that my, here comes another buzzword, emotional bandwidth was, um, you know, slightly limited in terms of how many other people I could support or have time for. So it's just like, I think it's just, there's this line that I included in my book, which I think about all the time that I got from the journalist Nezreen Malik, where she said that gain involves loss. And I found that one of the most revelatory things I've learned, not in a depressing way, but in any time you 
gained something or learned something, you have to shuffle something else off because there's only mm. so much time and there's only so much space in your brain. Mm. So it's just about like, okay, well, this is where my energy and this is where my focus and this is where my dedication's going. So this other thing just has to poodle mm. off yeah. just for a little bit. Maybe the, maybe the scales will rebalance. So I don't think it has to be a brutal thing. I just think I'm hoping that we could maybe have more of an awareness about like our capabilities yeah. um, and our, about our kind of intention and purpose. I think what you're talking about, which I like, is conscious choice about where we're going to channel our energies and time. Because yeah. I think before the pandemic, yeah. I thought my energy and time was absolutely elastic and I could always fit another thing in. Me and too. And I was at dropping point and I would have constant panic attacks, if I'm honest, before the pandemic. Mm. And I haven't had a panic attack in a long time because I've stayed in one place and I've let my body rest and, you know, and I don't, I mean, Tom and I were in bed last night saying, is it, we're a little bit nervous about going back out. Yeah, and I think a lot of Is it going to escalate are. again and, and is itself. it going to be at that frenetic pace? And if you had told me a year and three months ago when this pandemic started and we got locked down that a year and three months time, you're not going to have seen most of your friends and the people you love for a year and three months and you're going to be legally allowed to sit in a garden with them or a pub garden and you're not going to go, I would have said, no way. No way. I will mm. be desperately out there clinging to life. And instead I'm going, well, is it, I've half jabbed. Is it really safe? I think, well, it's what well, I'm just happy to wait till the end of June. Happy to wait till the end of June. Happy to wait till the end of June. I'm not, I'm used to this now. And I think, I don't know, I think I've got what I call Lockholm syndrome where I'm sort of slightly, <laughs> you know. You have to ease into it. Yeah. Some people are like, oh yeah, give me all the raves. So, you know, one of my friends was saying, I will go to anyone's wedding. I will pay to go to anyone's <laughs> wedding. I don't need to know them. They don't need no. to feed me. I just no. need to be allowed on the dance floor. No. I, I, I'm not, I'm not in that camp. <laughs> but I do also think I was interviewing um mental health campaigner and journalist Brani Gordon the other day, and I said to her, "Oh, you know, I suppose a silver lining of lockdown for me has been that I've been able to be home. I haven't had to be out and about so much, which is something that, like you sound like you were saying, Deborah, that you know really ran me down, especially when I'd." had two young babies. And she said, ah, now that's what I call Jareth. And she said, Jareth will make you feel like you're doing something good, that you're looking after yourself. You know, it's dangerous out there. It's safer to stay home. But the more you listen to him, the scarier outside becomes. And mm. that's not, it's not good for you. It's not good for you to always listen to Jareth telling you to stay home. Is Jareth the fictitious character that lives in your head, just to be clear? Yes. Jareth's not <laughs> her flatmate or anything. Okay, just to be clear. No, Jareth is her... We don't Jareth need to call the authorities. We don't need to get her a safe house, just to be clear. Yeah, okay. Um, no, I'm sure no. there's an element of that. And I am actually, of course, really excited and looking forward to being in rooms with people and hugging people, which is... Nice caveat. Optionally legal from the 18th. Is that right? Is I can optionally hug someone. Oh, I'll be lovely. honest with you. A very close friend and colleague, I hugged earlier and we've both been extremely careful I never go anywhere except the dance studio for two hours with one teacher that's literally the only place I've been I don't go to a restaurant I don't you know I literally once I I don't I haven't been to these pub gardens I don't go anywhere so I hugged this friend and it was amazing to kind of like oh we held each other for ages and I'd sort of forgotten about it and it was like an awake like a reawakening of a, a really human thing but my friend who is 29 and is going to lots of these pub gardens and you know can wait to see his friends he said there is an oddness that sometimes there's a lull in conversation and everyone goes quiet and someone goes am I being weird I feel like I'm being weird 
and they have to I reassure <laughs> that person. No, you're being fine. You're being fine. Aww. I feel like I look weird. Do I look weird? Am I being weird? Because people have forgotten how to do the sort of, you know, these are 29-year-olds that were 27 when they got locked down and they're like full of the bants and, you know, they're yeah. very social group. And he was like, people have lost some social skills. And I'm missing... I did that before. So now I'm like <laughs> even more hypervigilant. <laughs> to bring that back, to circle that back to authenticity, I think a lot of our old socially constructed pre-pandemic selves were not authentic. And we're going to find out a lot about what matters, who matters to us, yeah. who we're going to make the effort for. And I would say as a feminist, look around, ask yourself who's been locked down alone, who's been lonely, who is in a perhaps in a marginalized group, who is going to maybe struggle to fit back into these, yeah. you know, big old norm core groups, you know, whether that be with race or queerness or transness or disability, and ask ourselves, can we focus some of our time and energy with things that feed us and some of our time and energy with things that feed those who may otherwise not be fed, because that is where we will get our true feminist balance and also find great purpose. Beautifully put. That's also the definition of uh, wellness before it became Mm. bastardised. Interesting, because I feel self-care sometimes is a little bit... It's now just every candle that smells like Gwyneth Paltrow's vagina just marketed. Um, I don't see how that's self-care, except it means it's self-care if you are Gwyneth Paltrow's bank account. Um, yeah. Okay, we have run out of time. Susanna Fielding, do you have anything to plug? Or is there anything you came to say you did not get to say? Um, no, the only thing I'd like to plug is alarm clocks and leaving your phone out of your room. Um, I'm, I'm personally finding it um, wonderful for my wellness. Great. And do check out the extremely funny, this time with Alan Partridge. When's that on, Susanna? It's on at 9.30pm on Friday nights on BBC One. And you can catch it on iPlayer or if you are international, I'm sure there are ways you can see it. It's extremely funny. And I am loving your performance. And Lolly Adafope, oh my God, she cracks me up every time. brilliant, isn't she? She, That's a brilliant character. Yeah, there's some great women on that show. Yes, Uh, the great women on that show. Yeah, really lucky with the cast we have. Pandora Sykes, is there anything you came to say that you didn't get to say or anything you'd like to plug? I have nothing that I came to say that I didn't get to say. I've so enjoyed chatting to you. Um, I guess I should say you can buy my book out now in paperback how do we know we're doing it right by pandora sykes and you can listen to the missing anywhere you get your podcasts pandora sykes and susanna fielding thank you so much for joining me today you have been absolutely wonderful big round of applause thank you pandora and susanna thank you for having us thank you you have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Susanna Fielding, and our very special guest, Pandora Sykes. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Zielinski for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Rachel Crawford, and Gina Dizio and everyone who made this episode happen, as well as all of you for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe. It helps other people find the podcast and give it five full stars. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Now I'm going to introduce our guest. Pandora, are you ready? Have you finished your supper? I have finished my sausage. Okay, great. <laughs> our guest today, why does that? Why did you make that sound filthy? <laughs> our guest today. It is filthy. Uh, I mean, it just is. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.